All right. Well, that is it for the announcements, I think. So let's turn in our Bibles to our scripture reading, which today comes from Matthew chapter 21. And we'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 11. Matthew chapter 21, first 11 verses, verses 1 through 11. You can follow along in your Bibles and passage is also on the screen to my left. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is God's word. Well, we were supposed to have a guest speaker today. <laughs> Peter and Kathy Lee are one of our missionary families whom we're privileged to support. We haven't seen them in quite some time, and I was really looking forward to uh, hearing them share their update about how their ministry in France has been going, especially during some of the challenges they faced uh, in the COVID season. And then after that, Peter was going to preach the sermon. But then he called me on Friday to give me a heads up that Kathy wasn't feeling well, and they decided it'd be best to err on the side of caution. So we're going to schedule another Sunday for them to come and share, and hopefully soon. But that means <laughs> I'll be delivering the sermon today. Sorry. So Let's begin. Let's begin. Today's scripture reading, as we all know, is the story of Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We just read the passage together, so I will now offer the three main lessons. The first is that Jesus is the King. Jesus is the King. Second, Jesus is the humble King. And then third and last, Jesus is the sovereign King. He's the King. He's the humble King. He is the sovereign king. Those are our three lessons this morning. Let's begin with he is the king. You know, uh, I struggle with this because this point seems so obvious to the point of maybe even being insulting, but then I realize sometimes it's the obvious points that we take for granted. And when we start taking things for granted, they become less important to us, sometimes to our peril. So I'm going to go ahead and start with this obvious point and camp on this a bit. Um, what we have here, I know it's a little bit harder to see because of the lighting, but let's leave the lights on, it's okay. Uh, this is a painting of the triumphal entry 
This is how this event looked in the mind of the artist that drew it. He obviously must have thought it was an exciting and impressive occasion, and he's right to think that, because that's how Matthew presents this event in our passage. Let's take a closer look at some of the details that Matthew provides. In verse 8, he notes that a very large crowd had gathered. According to verse 9, there were crowds that not only went ahead of him, but were also following him. So in other words, Jesus was basically surrounded by a large number of people. Perhaps most importantly, this crowd wasn't just walking in front of him and behind him. They were also shouting. Matthew even tells us what they were saying. Hosanna to the son of David, just like we sang earlier during our opening song set. Those last three words are particularly important because David was the greatest king in the Old Testament. Nobody who lived in Palestine back in those days would ever address someone as the son of David unless they believed that he was some kind of king. That can be even more specific. No Jew living in those days would ever call someone the son of David unless they believed that this person was the Messiah. Because God had promised long ago that he was going to send this Messiah or this anointed one to rescue his people. And this Messiah would come specifically from David's line. There's one other detail that Matthew doesn't specifically mention, but I think we can safely assume happened. When the crowd addressed Jesus as the son of David, Matthew doesn't tell us that Jesus tried to stop them. Jesus could have said, don't call me that. That's not who I am. you got the wrong guy, but he didn't. The point here is Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of David. That's very clear from our passage. Jesus is the king. I guess the question for us, though, is, is he our king? Is he truly your king? And I ask this because we live in a culture that values wonderful ideals like freedom and equality. We are used to a form of government that is of the people and by the people and for the people, as President Lincoln famously said in his Gettysburg Address. But the thing is, the Bible actually never says that God's relationship with his people is like a democracy. I'm going to state the obvious once more here, but... God is not an elected official whom we can vote out of office if we decide we don't like him anymore. God does not have any term limits because he's not our representative. He's not our senator. He's not our president. He's not our governor. He is the king. Now, we may not be entirely comfortable with that idea. And again, maybe that's because of the culture in which we were born and raised. Michael Horton, a theologian and author, writes about this in an article. He says, One of the early slogans that appeared on signs and banners during the founding of our country was the phrase, We serve no sovereigns here. Getting rid of tyrannical kings was a good thing, politically speaking. But what happens when this idea morphs into the rejection of all forms of sovereignty? The customer is king. Each of us becomes his own little emperor. Now, of course, this isn't unique to America. It's part of the broader secularization of the West. 
More than that, it goes all the way back to the fall when Adam and Eve declared their independence from God. Autonomy, self-rule is just in our DNA. But as Americans, we've put autonomy in high gear. We know how to sell it. God may still play a supporting role in our life movie. He can be the cosmic bellhop who helps us have our best life now. Or he can be our therapist, our life coach, cruise director. But the one thing he can't be is, well, God. Our popular culture may take offense at this notion that Jesus is the king, but that is how the scriptures portray him. That's how our passage this morning from Matthew chapter 21 portrays him. He is the king. And so when the crowds shout this as he's entering into Jerusalem, Jesus doesn't try to stop them. Why should he? He is the king. That's our first lesson this morning from our passage. Jesus is the king. Again, obvious, but quite important. Secondly, Jesus isn't just the king. He is the humble king. He's the humble king. I don't know how many of us here have been to a victory parade. Maybe if you're a Cub fan, any Cub fans here who are kind of happy with how the three-game, two-game season has started so far, you attended the victory parade after they won the World Series back in 2016. Wow, that feels like such a long time ago, doesn't it? Look at that crowd. There is no social distancing of any kind. (laughs) Unthinkable in those days. Here's another view from even higher up in the air, like a drone shot or something. Now, there's been some debate about how many people actually showed up for this parade. At first, numbers like 5 million people were reported in the news stories, but then later, others were saying, ah, it's probably closer to 1 million. That's a big discrepancy, 5 million, 1 million. But the point is, whether it's 5 or 1, that's still a ton of people. I mean, this was a huge celebration, and understandably so. First World Series in over 100 years. But you know, American sports fans aren't the only ones who know how to throw a parade. The ancient Romans were really good at it too. In fact, whenever an emperor or a general returned home after winning a battle, the city would throw a huge celebration parade. And they even had a special name for these types of parades. They were called triumphs. Triumphs. Philip Yancey, an author, writes about these triumphs in a book he wrote called The Jesus I Never Knew. He says, The conquering general sits in a chariot of gold with stallions straining at the reins and wheel spikes flashing in the sunlight. Behind him, officers in polished armor display the banners captured from vanquished armies. At the rear comes a ragtag procession of slaves and prisoners in chains, living proof of what happens to those who defy Rome. Let me stop there for a second. Some of us might be wondering, well, why is he talking about these parades in Rome? We're not talking about Rome here in our passage. What does this have to do with Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? Well, we need to remember that when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the entire Holy Land was under Roman rule. And so their soldiers would walk through the streets in cities like Jerusalem to remind the people who lived there who was really in charge. And many of these Roman soldiers had seen more impressive parades in their lifetimes than the one that welcomed Jesus on 
that first Palm Sunday. In the same chapter I quoted earlier, Philip Yancey writes about what a Roman soldier in Jerusalem might have been thinking when he saw Jesus coming into the city. He says, when the officer looks for the object of the crowd's attention, he spies a lonely figure riding on no stallion or chariot, but on the back of a baby donkey, a borrowed coat draped across its backbone, serving as its saddle. Yes, there was a whiff of triumph on Palm Sunday, but not the kind of triumph that might impress Rome, and not the kind that impressed crowds in Jerusalem for long either. The point here is Palm Sunday, this was a pretty impressive event, but most Roman soldiers had seen better. Jesus was still coming into the city as a king, but his parade was smaller. It was less impressive than what many of these soldiers had seen back at home. And that's actually important because many of these Roman generals, many of these emperors who received these triumph parades, they were famous for their brutality. They were known for their cruelty. They were tyrants, and so their people often terrified of them. But this smaller celebration that we read in our story, this less impressive parade would show that Jesus is going to be an entirely different kind of king. He's not going to rule by oppressing his people. He's not going to rule by instilling fear into their hearts. He's going to rule by loving his people and serving them. That's the kind of king he is. He's not just the king, he's also the humble king. That's our second lesson from our Palm Sunday story this morning. Third, third and last lesson, Jesus is the sovereign king. He's the king, the humble king, and he's the sovereign king. Now maybe some of our younger youth group students might not be as familiar with this word sovereign. What exactly does that word mean? Well, According to one dictionary, a person who is sovereign is someone who possesses supreme or ultimate power. It sounds like a very good description for a king. I put it in an even more simpler way. To be sovereign is to have total and complete control. And I mention this because when we see how Matthew tells this story, it's hard to escape the fact that Jesus is in complete control of the situation. Some of his instructions to his disciples may seem a bit unusual, but he actually has a method to his seeming madness. Because many rulers and kings in the ancient world would show their power and their strength by riding in on a white horse. But in the first few verses of our story, Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead to find a donkey and a colt, and bring them to him. Why would he go through that kind of trouble? Why a donkey? Why a colt? Well, Matthew tells us in verse 4 and 5, it was so that he could fulfill a prediction or a prophecy in the Old Testament. Many centuries before this Palm Sunday event, a prophet named Zechariah had predicted that a future king would come to save God's people, and he would arrive on a donkey. But that's not the only prediction that Zechariah made. He also predicted that this future king would save his people by suffering for them. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. 
It says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, on that day a fountain will be opened in a house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Now this was 500 years before Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And why might that matter for our story from Matthew 21? Well, it matters because as Jesus is riding into the city on a donkey, as he's being welcomed as a king by this crowd, he knows that in just a few days, he's going to die. He knows that he's not coming into the city to receive a crown. Well, he is, but a different kind of crown. He's coming into the city to be nailed to a cross. And yet, he is doing absolutely everything his way. He's going to suffer and die. And he knows that. And that's all part of the plan. Which means he's still in complete control. He's still sovereign. Matthew tells us in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. He isn't just a king. And he isn't just a good and humble king. He's also the sovereign king. He is in complete control even as he rides into Jerusalem so that he can die. You know, I know many of our regulars here we already know why Jesus had to suffer and die. Many of us have even learned that the word Hosanna, which we sang earlier today, that word means save. We've learned that. This was indeed the only way that he could save his people. It was the only way that he could conquer their enemy, not the hated Romans, but the even more terrifying enemies of sin and death. Perhaps there are some of us here who we like what we're hearing. In fact, it almost sounds too good to be true. It might even sound like a bit of a fairy tale. And if I just described you, if I just describe how you're feeling, all I can say is even if you're having a hard time fully believing this, I hope that part of you would wish you could believe it. I hope that you could wish it were true because in the end, this story of Jesus' triumphal entry is about a king who loves his people so much that he is willing to die for them. He loves his people so much that he's willing to die for them. He knows exactly what's going to happen as he is riding into the city. He's arriving on Palm Sunday, and he knows that Good Friday is just a few days ahead. And death is waiting for him there. And he's going to go all in. He's not going to turn around. He's not going to change his mind. Because as he is riding into the city, he is thinking of you. And he is thinking of every single person who will put their faith in him. He knows what it will cost to save us. And he's willing to pay that price. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that the cross didn't happen because Jesus somehow lost his authority. The cross was his way of wielding his authority, of using his authority. 
Jesus was still in control even over a horrific event like his own crucifixion. If he's going to suffer and die, he's going to suffer and die on his terms. Because that's the kind of king he is. He's the humble king, and he's also our sovereign king. That's our third lesson this morning from Palm Sunday. As we wrap up, there's just one question I'd like to ask us all as we contemplate what's happened on this Palm Sunday morning. Our story presents Jesus as the king, as the humble king, and as a sovereign king. But the question I want to ask us again is, is he our king? Is he your king? Again, we may not be used to even thinking in those kind of categories here in 21st century America, but to repeat something I said earlier, God does not relate to us through a democracy. He is a benevolent monarch. He's our king. And so if I can ask us again, are we willing to acknowledge Jesus for who he is and submit ourselves to him and obey him? You know, I would argue that every single person, whether we're believers or not, every single person serves some kind of king. If that seems strange to us, what I mean is there's some kind of person or there's some kind of principle or some kind of idea that has captured our heart and even rules over us. It might be money. It might be comfort. It might be pleasure. It might even be good things like our grade point average or advancing in our career or our family or our future goals or our political convictions. Whether we realize it or not, we often worship and serve these things willingly. That person, that idea, that principle exercises authority over us. Maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, sorry man, you're you're losing me here. Because I really can't think of anything in my life that rules over me, at least not in the way that you're describing. Well, if that's the case, then let me suggest that we ask ourselves some probing questions. Questions like, where does my mind go when it's free to wander? What do I dream about? Where do I go to escape from my busy, hectic, stressful life? Our answers to these and other types of similar questions may reveal our true objects of love and affection. Those things may very well be our king. Here's some other questions. What are we afraid of? Or what do we fear more than anything else? What's the one thing, or who's the one person we can't imagine losing or having to give up? Michael Horton, the theologian I quoted earlier, writes about this in an article that he published shortly after the COVID outbreak shut down our schools and our restaurants and even many of our churches here in the States. Because we worship most what we fear most. So for some right now, the fear of catching COVID-19 dominates the headlines. People don't worship a virus, of course, but many do worship health 
physical and mental well-being. He writes, fear is an index of the object of our worship, the one ultimately in whom we place our trust. I think he may be honest something here. We worship or we serve whatever it is that we fear the most. And whatever that might be, that thing, that person, that may very well be our king. That person, that thing may have very well captured our hearts. And so if you're realizing that you might in fact serve some kind of king, I hope that you will see the beauty and the majesty and the humility of the true king in our story today. Because this king rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and he received a modest welcome. His parade was somewhat impressive. Maybe some of us today, even some of us have seen better. He arrived as the humble king. But he also came into Jerusalem on his terms. He came on a donkey to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah had predicted hundreds of years before. He came to the city to accomplish what God had planned long ago. He arrived on Palm Sunday as the sovereign king. And my friends, he still is the humble and sovereign king, even now. Even as the world around us seems to be burning. Even as some of us are watching our parents struggle with their different health problems. Even as some of us feel the helplessness as we see our kids struggling with their very real emotional and mental health challenges. Even as many of us anticipate the significant transition coming up for our church. He is still the king who loved his people so much that he was willing to die for them. And he's still the king who loves you, my sisters and brothers. And he is committed on keeping on loving you and protecting you from eternal harm until he comes back, makes everything new. Theological document known as the Westminster Larger Catechism assures us that Jesus fulfills his office as our king by granting saving grace upon those whom he has chosen and rewarding their obedience, and correcting them for their sins, and preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for His glory and for their good. The question for us today is, can we trust Him? Are we willing to submit fully to our King? And obey him. There's nothing more he can give to us than what he's already given. Can we trust him with our hopes, our fears, and even our uncertainties? Well, today's story from Palm Sunday assures us we can. We can trust him. Let's pray. Lord, your word reminds us of another prophecy about our King Jesus. It hasn't happened yet, but it will one day. Revelation chapter 19 tells us that our humble and our sovereign King will return 
on a white horse and everyone will see him. Jesus, as we remember your triumphal entry on this Palm Sunday morning, we pray that you would help us to once again submit ourselves to your good and merciful rule. Would you please help us to give to you our full trust, willingly and joyfully. Jesus, we thank you for loving us so much that you were willing to die for us. Thank you, Lord, for triumphing over our enemies of sin and death. You are such a good, wise king. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.